Yes, it is Daud Abudiab. Daud Abudiab, thank you. I knew that I would mess it up, so I just thought, let me just let you do this. We are coming to you from my good friend's home, uh, as uh, he is allowing us to uh, talk here. Um, we're not at Pancake's house today. Beautiful home, thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. I met your lovely wife, Robin. They were Their family is very kind, so I appreciate... Uh, you having coffee and donuts with me before we getting this going on. Um, we are going to talk about um, a little bit of everything, but I want to talk, I want to hear from you about Islam. I want to hear uh, your story where you're from. You're from, you're Palestinian. That is correct. And uh, I, I want to have uh, a conversation for people who don't know a Muslim, who don't know someone who has learned their lifetime from Islam and who's grown up in the Middle East and seen a, a lot of things. And so, so let's start off of uh, where you grew up and uh, uh, just the, the climate of, of what you saw growing up in Palestine. Yes. So I grew up in Arab East Jerusalem and I was born in 67 and uh, I was 40 days old. Uh, when the war had started. So uh, I hear, I'm told stories about how my family had to leave the house and go into the uh, caves in the mountain to protect uh, the family. And we returned to our home, which was in mostly a Muslim neighborhood. But our street was the dividing line in Jerusalem between the Arab and Jewish neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough to attend a Christian, Catholic, French school. Um, so you were, you were a, a Muslim boy in a, in a Catholic school? In a mixed Muslim-Jewish neighborhood. Wow. And so my parents uh, were not overly observant of the faith. Uh, what's interesting is that I was introduced to pluralism early on. So I attended a Catholic school that contracted a Muslim instructor to come once a week and teach us about Islam. Um, the way I learned about Islam, so it wasn't the five days a week, it wasn't an Islamic school, but I learned about Islam from mostly my mother. Mm -hmm. It was how to live as a Muslim, uh, how to be an upright person, um, which is different maybe from a lot of uh, Muslims who've learned about Islam. I've learned a long time ago about how to live a Muslim. And truly it was not until I came to the United States and I was in a place where I had to study um, and present to other Muslims that I started reconciling how I was raised up, how was I brought up with the concepts and the teachings within Islam. And as a, a child in that situation, um, you know, your, your friends that you're playing with are, are of different faiths. And there were there were there conflicts in that? Were there, you know, as you know, one today would think that there are going to be, that there were big conflicts with that? Not at all, actually. If, if anything, um, it was pretty much understood that people existed as they are. And so you accepted someone who is Armenian and uh, to the extent that they were willing to talk about their, their faith, their tradition, their culture, um, that you learned about um, what being Armenian is about. Mm -hmm. um, and you didn't question people. So an Armenian was a Christian, a Greek Orthodox was a Christian, a Baptist was a Christian, Sure. Um, Jew, Muslim. Um, the sects, um, whether you were a Hanafi or Hanbali, were really not things that we went into a great deal of discussion about. Mm -hmm. the, the different labels 
were not a point of discussion. So, as you when you came to the United States, now I, I do want to address. I mean, we, we have we have a lot to try to cover, um, but I want to get in depth in, in a few things just of, of your feelings and, and what you have seen, and because I, I think it will be a surprise to a lot of people who are who are uh, Christian who are who don't understand uh, Islam that there may be some concepts that we are the same or which is the whole point of the podcast or uh, where we thought we were different where we have there should be there's a, probably a lot more understanding than than uh, uh, they first realized um, when you and I first had coffee we talked about you know the the basics of Islam and I, I want to go back um, back to Palestine here for in, in a few minutes but what have you, you know, what, what are the basic tenets of Islam for someone who, who doesn't know, who only knows that Muslims are mean and want to kill us? So I often tell people that I don't like to talk about what Islam is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do that for, for a number of reasons. One is um, that often information, new information, is interpreted in light of existing information. Mm-hmm. So much of what I share about Islam often ends up um, just not resonating uh, because of that, because of what things people already know about Islam. So I can say Islam is like Christianity and Judaism. It is a monotheistic um, faith tradition, the belief in, in one God, uh, the belief in angels, the belief in revealed scripture, the books, the holy books, a belief in um, um, judgment and uh, heaven and hell, um, the accountability, um, the belief in um, the prophets who delivered the message, mm-hmm. and in essence, when I say Islam is about loving God and about loving your neighbor, I think many within the Jewish and Christian tradition look at me funny as if I stole that from them. <laughs> but that's what Islam is. The, our Prophet Muhammad, peace and prayer be upon him, said a Muslim is one who obviously believes in, in what I've mentioned. But a Muslim is one whose neighbor is um, safe and is not harmed by his tongue or hand, i.e. a Muslim is someone who does not harm another by words or deed. Mm -hmm. So so say that again for someone who doesn't want to rewind this podcast to hear it again. The part that people think you have stolen is that what you've learned from God through Islam is? To love God and to love your neighbors. Very interesting. Um, when I have friends who will say things about Muslims, I actually, I actually ask them to use your name and just say, instead of saying those Muslims, would you say, Daoud, please? And just because that's my friend. And so let's let's say, and so they will say, your friend will lie to you. Your friend will do this. And I, I'm sorry, I have a friendship with you, and I don't see that at all. And it seems to me the opportunity for people to talk to someone. Are most Muslims open to someone asking open questions, not cynical questions, not sarcastic questions, but are, are most Muslims open to at someone asking about their faith? Oh, absolutely. Have you ever met anybody who does not enjoy talking about themselves and their faith tradition? Sure, especially here in the South. Absolutely. Well, good. Well, that's, I think that's a place to start, is to, to find someone and say, I'd like to ask a question. Why do you wear that? Yeah. And, and, why, and, and why do you believe this? Um, I'll, I'll share this with you. I think one of the things about being Muslim is that I'm human first. And so there's desires, lusts, 
things that appeal to me that are no different than what appeals to most people. And I am likely to act on those desires. So I want to have what you have. I want to take out of your pocket and put it in my pocket. Mm -hmm. That's my tendency. And regardless, I think that is part of being human. Now, being a Muslim is where my relationship with God impacts how I relate to you. Mm -hmm. So rather than take from your pocket and add to my pocket, the relationship I have with God guides me to take out of my pocket and add to yours if I know that you have such a need. Very good. So <clears throat> growing up in, um, in Palestine, in that situation, was that, was that something, now you, you said you were a, a baby when, when the war happened. Um, were, were you know in and so as, as you grew up into the 70s did did you see these uh the divide or was it con you know, the uh, the separation that there seems to be now um what we hear as christians are basically the side of this is what is you know this is the side from israel and this is what's going on how was it on the side of the on the palestinian side uh, was there, you know, and I'm not asking you to call bullies and call, call out things, but at the same time, what was your experience? You know, I think my experience has been unique because of the diversity that I grew up in. Um, that never happened, not even until today. And my heart bleeds, my heart cries for the uh, agony of the Palestinian people. Mm -hmm. Um, but has nev that has never created hatred in my heart for uh, Jews or Israelis. Um, I have many Jewish friends in Nashville. And I have stated to a fellow Muslim once that I'm going to have dinner with a Jewish friend. And my friend said, well, I'm glad it's you, not me, who's doing this. Mm. I asked why. Well, I wouldn't be able to do that. I said, you wouldn't be able to eat dinner? He said, no, eat dinner with a Jew. That is more of the general uh, experience within probably the majority of Muslims, the majority of Palestinians. I saw people early on as human uh, who practice different faith, different traditions. Um, on the Palestinian side, on the Israeli side, the Jews could be black or white. Mm -hmm. Muslims, Palestinians could be black or white. Um, the same of every other sect. And so I was never able to see people um, as Jews first or as Muslim first. I saw people as people first. And that's never changed. And maybe that's what I'm realizing nowadays is what allows me to do what I do today without being held back by those labels and those divisions. How did you get from Palestine to the United States? There's different ways to answer that. Uh, what specifically? Um, did you, so what, what drew your family here? So uh, I have an older brother uh, by about two or three years. And um, it, it's fair to say that most immigrants uh, go where they know they may have a friend or family. He had a friend who had a sister in Little Rock. And just by knowing that person, that's one place that's come up, Little Rock, Arkansas, of all places. And uh, my brother was here for a couple of years. I had graduated from high school. I attended almost one semester at Bethlehem University. And uh, the uprising, the first uprising uh, by the Palestinians against the occupation was uh, at the infant stage. Uh, the, as we rioted, 
uh, in colleges and on the streets as Palestinians rioted, college campuses would be shut down for um, an indefinite period. And so my father posed the question, I can either buy you a car and you stay here or I can pay for your college and send you to the United States where your brother is. Well, I figured if he sent me to the States, he's likely to buy me a car too. (laughs) So it was an easy decision. Very nice. Now, did you riot? Were you part of that protest? You know, I never rioted. I remember standing on the second or third floor of the one of the buildings at Bethlehem University. And the gate to the campus was closed. Um, there were tear gas uh, canisters fired over the wall. And I recall seeing fellow classmates and, and students running towards the building. And they would run into one of those clouds and just pass out. Mm-hmm. And others would run to them and, and give them water. So I was one of those who always lived a sheltered life and ran away and did not participate. But it, in, a, in a way, I think I look back at it and I just never found that to be appealing in any way. I, I just don't think that it, it is ever effective to resolve issues in a violent way. Mm-hmm. We destroy more than we create when we do that. Sure. So help me here in that um, I have changed my views on many things. And so for the first time publicly, I realize I've told friends, but I used to have the Zionist view that whatever Israel does is okay. Um, because they're God's crew, they're God's people, and so they can. Then, as I have seen things that have happened, um, and this was, you know, not back in the 70s, this is, you know, 90s and 2000, the 2000s, really. Um, I've changed my view that I can't just write a blank check and say, that's okay. That's, you know, whatever they do is okay. From your side, from the Palestinian side, what were you seeing? You said, okay, you called it the occupation from, from, from the United States and from a Christian, well, from a Christian, from an American evangelical side, they don't call it the occupation. They just call it, this is, this is what Israel has to do to survive. So what did you see? Again, I'm not asking you to call bullies. I'm not asking you to call, call meanness, but what did, what was the experience of that? I mean, there is oppression there. And what, what did you experience with that? You know, I lived in Jerusalem and, um, Palestinians who lived in Jerusalem enjoyed uh, more privileges than Palestinians who lived in the West Bank. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Palestinian community was divided into three. There were Palestinians who lived within Israel proper. There were Palestinians who lived in Jerusalem, and there was, which is disputed, prob- uh, geographical area. And then there's the West Bank. And so the ones within Israel proper um, were more likely to be citizens and enjoyed almost equal rights. Uh, people within Jerusalem were a little bit more privileged than people in the West Bank. Mm-hmm. When I went to Bethlehem University, I realized the disparity between how I lived and how a young fellow classmate um, had to to stay up and spend hours and hours translating one page from English to Arabic, looking up, looking up the terms, and he used that with an oil lamp. In the morning, he polished his shoes, and he traveled um, maybe a couple of miles walking in dirt on dirt roads, and then getting to a bus to go to another stop, to get on another bus, and then walk the rest of the way to campus. I realized I didn't live that life. Mm -hmm. I didn't live uh, with five or six individuals sharing a room. Um, Palestinians have suffered a lot under the occupation. I somewhat feel guilty for, for not having gone through that experience. 
Um, I think it is difficult for example for Americans uh, and American Jews to use the word occupation because in in your own experience it doesn't really translate so when I say occupied uh, people it means nothing to you to me it means inability to self-determination to travel to move around freely to to really exercise a lot of the decisions that you otherwise would so I made the decision to attend college at Bethlehem University but somebody made a decision that that university would be shut down it didn't operate the way that it operates in the United States where you attend a college and it is the government it is the um, this whole system of higher education that works on keeping that for you uh, running and fulfilling your dream mm -hmm. uh, if you're occupied what happens is that you make that decision and then somebody can make decisions that affect your freedoms um, when you're traveling you are to use one road versus another that others who are at a are, are more privileged or favored uh, would travel. So there's a great deal of inequity in occupation. And I've used the word in front of um, Jewish friends and, and they were enraged. They said, we don't think of it as occupation and that it's temporary. And I remember my response was, oh, I'm so glad it is that you think it's temporary and that one day that will lift. <laughs> uh, but I don't see that happening. And um, I have learned as a young child when things go against our teachings to be kind, loving, share, respect others. When we want to go against those, we justify our contrarian action to God. God has said it's okay. And it is what ISIS does today. I'm not comparing Israel to ISIS. I don't. I don't Certainly. like. I get that. Uh, you know, to do any of that, but I compare our actions as individuals. This is how we function. We don't want to take ownership of what, of what we're doing when it is not sitting well with the teachings we proclaim. Exactly. You have. You told me a story one time. Uh, I think it was your aunt who. Um, went through some of the the bombings that happened in the uh, was it was it in the 50s in the 40s the the uh, the barrel you mentioned barrel it was bombs. my mother your mother yes my mother had lived and I, I didn't know this I think my mother has shared this with me but my mother also lived in Bethlehem my family grew up in Jerusalem when she was a child maybe around uh, 9 to 11 years old she had lived in the city of Bethlehem and she was relaying a story to me as I mentioned the use of barrel bombs in on Syrian refugees nowadays and she said oh I remember those those are horrible and I was just shocked uh, how would she know about the impact of barrel bombs I don't recall that being in the history of of the Palestinian resistance. And, and just to pause, what are barrel bombs for people who don't know? I'm not sure that I know any more than that these are explosive materials that are uh, packaged in barrels and have um, devices and, and nails and things like that, that when they explode, as they hit the ground, they kill indiscriminately. Sure. And large numbers. So these are used in populated areas to reduce the number of lives in a spot. Sure. Uh, I mean, that's the crude way of explaining it. And so um, it makes sense to hide under things because things will, will come at you. Lots and of she said, yeah. a lot of, yeah. And so uh, her dad would ask her to go run under the beds and they would hide. Uh, and that was the first time that I've heard about barrel bombs being used at that time. So fast forward today, we and, talk and about... And that was what, in the, in the 
early 50s? Uh, yeah, yeah, it would have to be around that time. Okay. And so uh, what I look at today and, uh, you know, what I mentioned earlier about being Muslim, I'm, I'm human first. So when people interpret my actions, uh, if you're a minority, people will say, well, it's because you're a Muslim. And it only takes a majority to believe that. What I say about you as a white person, for example, will never stick to you because there'll never be a majority who will say that. There's never majority opinion that you, white people, are criminal and because you, do a, you commit a lot of uh, white-collar crime. Mm -hmm. It just will never stick to you. Sure. There's not enough of us to make it happen. And so when people look today at who and what Islam who are Muslims and what Islam is, and they see those savage uh, ways, uh, whether it is the use of barrel bombs, whether it is the cutting off of heads, beheading people, or whether it is um, um, using violence, uh, for whatever reason, we're called savages. And what I pondered at is, Muslims have not necessarily come up with ways to torture that were not around. Yes. We, we pretty much go about life in the, to the same extent of savagery that Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, even peaceful people who claim, claim nonviolence uh, commit in the name of their faith tradition. We are no different. We don't have a monopoly on beheadings. Yes. This is how <laughs> the European uh, celebrated their success of defeating the North Africans by cutting their heads off. And you can find those pictures um, in, in books. Um, so, you know, going back to, to that, when, when you uh, exercise that right of labeling Daoud as a Muslim because of his action and then reflecting that on a 1.6, 1.3 billion Muslims, uh, it is almost as if you're taking ownership of me, mm. as if I somehow belong to you and I don't have the right to determine who I am, to self-define. So it, it's kind of a double whammy being a Palestinian and a Muslim uh, and I struggle with that a lot because I, I try not to talk about both uh, in the same conversation so as not to confuse the topic. Uh, but as a Palestinian, I don't have self-determination. As a Muslim living in America, uh, I'm having a very hard time defining, self-defining, uh, because so many take liberty in defining who and what a Muslim is. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk more about who you are. You went to school, you came came to the United States, and you were in Little Rock. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, met a fine girl, and you married um, a Christian girl who converted to Islam. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, and then, and and how did without without going into without pulling her into <laughs> in and bringing that. How did all of that come about? A little bit of your courtship and how did that go with her family? You know, that happened early on, I think within my first year of college. And um, she had attended a Christian college uh, in Salem Springs, Arkansas for, for a year and decided that's not for her. Um, she was on a journey, she was searching. Um, we met at a Halloween party on campus and we somehow connected at a level that we were not aware of. Mm. Um, we went separate ways and then we reconnected and, and we started talking and early on I just knew this is the one. Mm -hmm. um, she was open-minded, she was very interested um, and I'd, I don't think it was necessarily the looks. I don't think it was the uh, physical attraction. I think it was somehow that connection was felt. 
and um, you know we talked before about how somebody uh, a Hanif uh, is an upright person has a has a unrealized relationship with God and and you seek God at some point in your life uh, but you didn't know that that relationship existed and I think with Robin and I it seems like that relationship existed and so we were it, it was only natural that we pursue that together and we did yeah yeah we did both pursuing each other and pursuing that relationship I think with God and so we started talking about about God and about living a life that reflects a healthy relationship with people because of our relationship with God um, it, it was a belief that we shared um, our faith should impact how we relate to other people. From that point forward, it seemed very simple. We enjoyed each other's company. Um, we saw eye to eye. As we discovered things, I think we shared and we allowed each other to grow. And, you know, for many years, I don't remember um, many days a year that we didn't spend time together. Mm -hmm. Of course, it wasn't easy because we had somewhat two different cultures. I grew up in a very open way and so it wasn't a problem uh, how she was raised or, or how she believed. Um, somehow we managed to get to the same point even though we it may have appeared that we believed differently. Um, we were surrounded by people who could have pulled us in different directions. I had a very small number of family members and friends. She had strong ties to her family. Mm -hmm. uh, her mother was raised Catholic. Her father later on became um, a pastor in life. And her family professes Christianity and, uh, you know, strong adherence to it. They are quite conservative. Um, and I think they always respected both of us. They knew us to be kind people. I think the very first time I took my father to meet her family. My father has come from Jerusalem to visit and I took him to their home and he sat down in the living room and he saw about half a million family photo pictures, photos of, of the uh, <laughs> children. Yeah. And when we left I said, so how did you overcome Okay, my son is looking at marrying an, a, you know, an American girl. And he said, I, was, I felt at ease once I walked into the living room and I saw um, their, their love of family. And, and that's what I talk about in, you know, when, when we grow up with the ability to accept another person's view as being legitimate. Accepting it and being able to take the next step without changing the other. And so for Robin and I it was never, and she would tell you, it was never about changing, converting and accepting Islam. She didn't have to give up Christianity. And she repeats that. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately many people see that, including family members, as a betrayal to, to Christianity, to the grouping that they consider uh, binds them together. Uh, and that has created challenges. Uh, I can't recall a time when any of that has presented in a way that was not, um, that we were not able to overcome and uh, speak through. Um, and I attribute a lot of that to, to the goodness of their hearts, their, her, her mom and dad, her siblings and the openness of my parents as well. Mm -hmm. Now, again, correct me, I'm, I'm, correct me if, I, if I misstate anything along, along these lines. Um, you came to, you moved to Tennessee, and you established, eventually established a, a mosque in, um, in Columbia, Tennessee. Is that correct? Yes. Now, I stop and I pause, and I think, wow, a mosque in Columbia, Tennessee, which is rather the buckle of southern everything. 
but obviously there were there were people that supported that and wanted that to happen there were there were plenty of there there was a there was a place for that to happen there were people there was a need um tell us how you established that and how that went and then what happened afterwards you know when we when i first interview in tennessee for my job in columbia um i flew in and so what i wanted to do was look for middle eastern food <laughs> and i also found the islamic center of nashville on 12th south so we visited a middle eastern restaurant and we visited the mosque and then we drove down to columbia i didn't ask about school system i didn't ask about the mosque i didn't ask about mediterranean food in colombia sure i just wanted to know that i can drive an hour and find all of that um, but you know our nature is to seek community sure and um I, I can't say that it was easy for us to to find community or not i think people were very welcoming and um, we were well accepted uh, Robin at the time uh, sported the average American look. She didn't wear a hijab, a scarf to cover her hair. Uh, we had moved to Colombia in 98 and she she wore the hijab. She started wearing the hijab I think in July of 2001, just a month before, a couple of months, I think maybe July or August of uh, before 9/11 happened. Now, now I'm I'm being I'm being mean here, but of course she wore the hijab because you forced her to. You told her that she needed to do that. Of course, why else would <laughs> would a woman want to cover her head? Why would a woman cover her upper body? Why would a woman wear a skirt? I was being because we all all of us men force women to <laughs> cover up, don't we? Because we just, we tell them what they need to wear. Of course, I'm being disingenuous. Just so am as, I. As, as a, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so as a pause on, on the the uh, coming to Colombia, uh, why do women wear the hijab? So uh, the hijab is, in a way, kind of like a wedding ring. And early on in Islam, um, just like any other community, there were... Um, individuals who entertained others for a living sure and um, wearing the hijab was a way to denote that this person is not available so when she is passing in public she is recognized as taken or 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 as in married uh, that she is not to be harassed or pursued and that was one of the way that uh, the ladies of the night and the ladies of um, Commun others yes. community yeah. were were noted, and Understood. so it's it's a way uh, also to to reflect one to reflect one's modesty. I often ask people: There's a place that if a person wore the wrong attire or components of an attire. Uh, they would be taken to jail. Where would that be? And people would think, well, maybe in Saudi Arabia. Well, right now, it could be in France. But also in Columbia, Tennessee, I think if a woman walked around topless, then she would be taken to jail for indecent exposure. Sure. So in essence, we already accept uh, a set of morals that define modesty to, an, to, to a degree somehow because it is foreign to uh, the recent American culture which I think if you go back maybe uh, 40 years you would find that uh, Christian women wore a scarf when they went certain places. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Jerusalem and pilgrims from Cyprus would walk around dressed in black long skirts and have a black scarf on their head and they would walk around the city, um, uh, mostly elderly, carrying a folding chair, and they would stop, sit, rest, and continue mm -hmm. through the Via Della Rosa, the path Jesus walked. Mm -hmm. um, because it, it is not in our recent experience uh, culturally, I think we, we, we see it as something strange, but it's no different than wearing a blouse to cover one's top. 
nearby, Lawrenceville, Lawrenceburg. Lawrenceburg and Etheridge. The, the, uh, the, the, the Amish community, the women cover their heads. That is part of what they do. That's that's part of the uh, that's part of the culture as well. Absolutely, and we seem and we accept that here. Uh, although people may look at it quirkily, they they accept it, and this is I I see that this is the same type of thing. Oh, absolutely, yeah. we accept it for convenience. Yes, but we want to accept it for faith, for example. Sure, you know, one of in one of the images because of the conversation going on about banning the burkini on on. Um, uh, in France, in France, on beaches. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I saw a photo of two uh, bikers in their, you know, head to toe covered, even with the helmet, laying down on beach towels, uh, and and that's okay. So some people would say it's so hot. Why would you do that? Well, think of all the other times that we don't question someone's freedom in deciding what they wear, mm -hmm. how much to cover, mm -hmm. or our own history and present where we exercise those decisions. Again, I think it is part of being a minority where the majority want to define you and own you in a sense that I get to say why you're wearing hijab and I will ignore everything that you say about it being an expression of modesty. It is oppressive, and it's not because you choose to do that. I will tell you it is because your father, your husband, your brother is forcing you to do that. Yes. I shall not respect your decision. Mm -hmm. Back to Colombia, coming to Colombia, you found um, Middle Eastern food and a mosque on 12th South in Nashville, an hour away desire for community when you were when you were working in Colombia so we started we ran into a few Muslims there were a couple of Egyptians uh, who were running shops at the mall a shoe store a clothing store there was uh, two Kurdish families one family one single man uh, and, and we started somehow identifying Muslims in the community either because they are immigrant or because of garb and uh, it doesn't take too long before if you're two or three as Muslims we have a duty to pray in congregation on Friday uh, we pray usually around noon and we started praying congregating at the storage part of the shoe store and then a local man uh, African-American Muslim, only Muslim in his family, and maybe one of the earliest in Colombia uh, that I know of, uh, has always dreamed about having a place to pray and exercise his faith, worship in Columbia, Tennessee. So he, he would always travel to Nashville to pray on Friday. And he said, I would love for us to be able to pray here in Columbia. And he said, one day I would love for people traveling 65 who are Muslim on Friday to see a sign that say, I'm going to stop and go to Colombia and fulfill my duty to pray in congregation on Fridays. And so he looked at a garage, a mechanical garage with, with one of those um, uh, doors and concrete sure. floors and we my wife got busy, she was excited about that idea, the others as well. We rented a place and we were there for maybe about a year and a half or so. And early on I started realizing that one of us, none of us were qualified to really lead in prayer and deliver the sermons. And, and there we all gave very poor examples of what a sermon should look like. We mm -hmm. were reading without preparation and I started feeling responsible to prepare and and deliver the sermon even though I was not brought up you know learning how to recite Quran you know seven days a week or studied this tradition or that tradition um, in within a year or so we uh, during Ramadan which is the month month of fasting one of the Egyptian friends uh, stopped by for dinner 
at a friend's house. We were maybe six, seven of us. And he said, I passed a building that had a for sale or, or rent. And we talked to the guy, we bought the building, we moved to that location. Within a year and a half, we had paid it off. And we went until really 2008 without any incident. I think people were accepting, people knew us. One of the main decisions we went through uh, and struggled with was whether to have a large sign with large letters or or just a small sign with small letters. Um, and we went until 2008 really without an incident. Um, what happened in, in after 2007-2008? You know, during the time from established until to 2008, uh, 2000. Seven, we were featured, you know, in in the paper, so people knew we were there, mm-hmm. and we don't recall any uh, hostility then. But one morning, I received a call um, a little after sunrise that um, the building was on fire, mm-hmm. and so we. We got up and I took my daughter, who was maybe seven or eight, uh, with me. And as I was, it was about a five minute drive and all I could think of was who, this happened on Saturday and we pray on Friday. Somebody must have left the coffee maker on, um, a short, something like that, an electric caused it. So when we got there, the whole block was um, boarded off, or or there were uh, yellow tape, and it wasn't a small fire, and the flames were coming off the roof. Uh, there were too many people, and then I noticed writings on the wall, the swastika and um, some writings, white power things like that and I realized this was not an accidental fire. Um, There was a large number of law enforcement and people walking around and one um, Mr. Kavanaugh at the time grabbed me and he said I want to explain a couple of things for you. I have worked on church burnings in the southeast in Georgia and Alabama and Tennessee and I will tell you that there are there's reason for us to believe that this was a hate crime mm-hmm. and that that's when it started to settle I don't this has happened when my son was one he's now 18 and uh, It is still difficult to talk about. You know, as a Palestinian, I came to America uh, to enjoy freedom in all of its forms, not to be victimized. And there's two things I don't care for, inequity and being a victim. Knowing that someone harbor that much hate to destroy a house of worship. Multiple attempts. Three young men with the Christian identity movement have tried to burn the place down towards the end of the night on Friday and they failed. So they regrouped and got what what they needed from gas station and from Walmart to be successful in burning the place down. These people didn't even know us. Mm-hmm. Within, within a couple of weeks, I sat behind one of those, several of those men in a court within two feet and they didn't know who I was. In their mind, what they said is, 
They did so because what we were doing in that building, our worship was contrary to what their Bible said. And that was reason enough for them to justify an act of hate, an act of violence, that in reference to our conversation earlier in my point, that's when they didn't own their evil act. They blamed it on God. Mm-hmm. And in today's context, that's not accepted by the majority as that wasn't the name of Christianity, or that it was because that's how they interpreted the Bible. It was an isolated act by people who were misguided, deranged, what have you. And, you know, the, the, maybe the lowest form of inequity here is that I'm not afforded, as a Muslim in America, I'm not afforded the least of that benefit of the doubt, that, that excuse, um, that uh, freedom from other Muslims who are human and act in an evil way. And people say, well, why don't Muslims come out and apologize or condemn? When that happened, within a week there was a vigil that was arranged. Maybe there were a hundred people. Half of them, more than half, were from Nashville and Huntsville. Friends and people I consider family. Mm-hmm. Less than 50 people from Colombia condemned publicly, called us and apologized. My children said, if those people claim to be Christian, does this mean our Christian friends also believe the same way as these three young men do? What about our family? My daughter asked that question. How come they haven't reached out to us? I know for many years I was a Rotarian and there were maybe three people who said something privately to me in my own Rotary Club about this incident. And I went for almost a year or two after that incident happened being a member. But I know how we act as a community. There would be a fish fry. There would be enough money raised, you know, from the immediate community that same night to take care of, you know, that group within the community. Yes. There, there wasn't such a thing uh, that was initiated by, by the local community. Um, because of our faith, all of a sudden, uh, being Muslim played a part. How do we relate to the Muslims? It was easy to leave them alone, but now do we treat them with kindness? And, and there was one preacher, Bill Williamson, with First Presbyterian, who reached out to me the second day and he said, I have a check for you. I think mm. it was 1200 or $1,400 that he collected from his church. And on Wednesday, the same week, he said, here's a key. You pick any space in the church for your congregation to pray. Another pastor said, we shouldn't use church dollars to promote demon worship Hmm. by this group. Didn't condone what happened, but he was okay with it moving on. And Bill Williamson said to me, Daoud, I don't want to misguide you. But the majority of people would rather you not be here. And what's interesting is I've never met a person in Colombia who, who said, I don't want you to be here. I've, I developed many relationships, many friendships. Um, I never met an unaccepting person. The problem comes when we bring out that identity without context. 
It was being a Muslim that was a problem. Not being Dawood. Mm-hmm. Not being a human being. Not being a neighbor. It wasn't being um, um, a resident of Colombia. It was now Dawood was reduced to simply being a Muslim. And that's when people start relating differently to me. And I learned a very important lesson from that. That I have to work on reminding people that I am me. I'm not simply a mere Muslim account of one. And that's true of the different identities. Mm -hmm. If you're an immigrant, then we justify taking away freedoms and liberties and and kindness withhold that from you because you're only an immigrant you're no longer a human being if you're gay if you're lesbian if you're um, Jew you know my friend when he said I can't eat dinner with a Jew he just saw my friend Bernard as simply a Jew no more Mm -hmm. nothing else and that's that's what I engage in nowadays, it seems like, day in, day out, is reminding people that we, as Muslims, as immigrants, uh, as natives, as Caucasians who accept and revert to Islam, uh, all of us are human beings who, like everyone else, wish to exercise our own freedom in worship and in making decisions about our faith and the way we live for ourselves and our family and affording you the same and in security and in peace for everyone Mm -hmm. and that's the majority of American Muslims we didn't come here to live in turmoil many of us came here to avoid that many came here to create a better life many were here to begin with and simply want to 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 pursue the american dream as as all americans um, have the right to do so there's so much to talk about as as we as we wind up this this podcast and i think we need just we'll just plan on in a few weeks doing another podcast and talking about more but out of this tragedy and hate crime that happened sprung a movement that is um uh that that that's actually how i how i came to meet you more or less is is through that what what has what has come out of that so ever since that moment what i realized is that relationships of trust bring back the wholesomeness of doubt being a human being yes and so I became very keen on keeping maintaining and building relationships being intentional in those over the years that that became evident to others I got involved in community groups like interfaith groups like family of Abraham uh, Muslim Christian Jewish and other today including others Uh, circle of friends with Jews and Muslims Um, the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition um, because they they stood by me and my community Um, and then somebody realized the value the depth of relationships that existed in the interfaith community here around Daoud around me and they were looking for a pilot to start the Our Muslim Neighbor Initiative. And so it took me about a year or two to, to establish and, and build a coalition around the Our Muslim Neighbor Initiative. Our organization is called Faith and Culture Center that I founded several years ago. And we simply 
act on the Our Muslim Neighbor Initiative. In all that we do, whether it is a seat at the table inviting Muslims and non-Muslims with, with diverse backgrounds to come together and, and have a conversation about who we are as a whole, as individuals, uh, not knowing me as simply a Muslim, as if there's nothing else to doubt, to know than simply being Muslim and being comfortable with Dawood's version of Islam. Um, conferences that we do. You can get on our website, uh, faithandculturecenter.org, spelled out. Uh, we're on Facebook. We promote the different events. We have a conference coming up on September 24th called Our Muslim Neighbor, the power of rhetoric and imagery. Uh, it speaks about how to speak about how Muslims are viewed and presented in media. We hold forums uh, to speak about difficult issues that the non-Muslim American uh, population um, struggles with understanding things like what is Sharia. Uh, we try to give Muslims the opportunity to to speak about who we are and, and what we believe in. Um, and if I wanted to learn more about um, a Christian, I think I would be wise to ask a Christian, not a Hindu, <laughs> to talk about Christianity. Yes. And we try to provide a venue where people can get to know one another and then establish a relationship. And from that relationship, I think the limits are as wide open, um, just like with our friendship hmm. uh, and my relationships with so many people where so many doors were open and people get to know us. And people find out that, um, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, for many of us, our experience has been God is there and we know he's there and at some point we seek him. You know, the Muslim neighbor is already there. We're here. There's, by any count, three to ten million Muslims. We are your neighbors. And you know us, you see us, you recognize us, but you know very little about us. So what I would encourage most people is if you have a Muslim neighbor, reach out to them. They're less likely to reach out to you because of how they know they're perceived in the community. Reach out to them. Get to know them first. And then what you'll find out is much of what you hear will be interpreted in light of existing knowledge. And that existing knowledge becomes moves away from your Muslim neighbor being a stranger to being simply a neighbor. Not an evil one, because they've lived next to you for many years. Just like the Muslims in Murfreesboro. They were never a threat. Mm -hmm. And then when they were identified as simply Muslim, then they became a threat. Never mind 30 plus years being part of the community. Never mind being part of the community today. Reaching out and helping with the homeless with catastrophes that happen. We're part of the community, we're part of the fabric, and we contribute. Um, we seek the same. Um, we're families. If you close your eyes and the image of a Muslim bothers you, then you desperately need to meet some Muslims. Hmm. What I want you to see is Daoud and Robin Hayat, Laith, and safe. Not somebody in a strange garb who is screaming Allahu Akbar and um, scaring you. Yes. That's, that's not what a Muslim is. And that's, we've talked before that when there's a difference between those Muslims and Daoud. And people can say, well, Daoud's fine. He's not one of them. Well, most of them are not one of them. In fact, you can say 99% of them are not one of what you have in your head because 
I know you. And you know that's when the majority of Muslims don't fit that image you get, you as in the person on the street, when they think of a Muslim, I don't fit that. And so worse off is when you are denied who you are. So Dawood is, is discounted as being a Muslim. What I do is, is not accepted as I do this because I'm Muslim. I don't go to work and, and honor my profession, take care of my children and because I'm Muslim. They don't accept that. We're saving lives. We're contributing to America because of who we are. It is only when one Muslim, uh, a, a very, very, very small percent, commits evil that the majority are thinking of their actions as being what Islam is. And by the way, I see all that your people, quote unquote, <laughs> do. Rape. Yes. Molestation. Yes. Incest. Ignoring the poor. Ignoring the, the homeless. Um, stealing. Cheating. Killing. I see all of that. I just don't accept or paint you with that brush. Yes. We're going to end it here. We're going to have another podcast down the line. If people want to contact you directly, how can what through what uh, portal can they do that? How can they do that? So I've met a lot of people on Facebook. It's Daoud, D-A-O-U-D, Abu Diab, A-B-U-D-I-A-B. Uh, if, if you want to reach me via email, um, it is my first name, last name, Daoud Abu Diab at yahoo.com. Um, you can reach me through our uh, faithandculturecenter.org uh, and spelled out. And I suggest you check that out. That's a good, it's a worthy organization to support and find out more information out about, people can find out more about it on the website. And if, if this uh, conversation in any way inspires someone to want to to know a Muslim because we're only less than one percent sure. so there's not many opportunities to really meet a, meet a Muslim and get to know them Faith and Culture Center our Muslim neighbor initiative uh, is intentional about providing such venues so get on our website get on our Facebook like the page and you may become a participant in the a seat at the table. We provide the food, a dinner, we provide a facilitator, and we have a conversation that I hear from almost every participant, leaves everyone enriched. It's a two-way, it's about the Muslim community also learning about the non-Muslim community. Thank you for joining me, Daoud Abudiab. Thank you very much for, for affording us your lovely home to do the podcast from this and i am i'm proud to call you my friend i am proud to say that the name of this podcast for this one in particular and for all of them we are the same difference thank you very much for joining us thank you michael